turn in your Bible to Ephesians, the first chapter. Uh, Ephesians is, is my favorite book of the Bible. So we were in an elders meeting several months ago talking about where God is leading us and talking about where we would be preaching after our Together series. And someone mentioned the book of Ephesians and my heart leapt for joy because I love the book of Ephesians. And I've heard from some of you that it's uh, one of your favorite books as well. Um, it's sp- specifically the second chapter just stands out to me. And I, I can't wait till we get there. It's, it's full of grace. Um, it's just full of truth. It's full of hope. It gives us this sweet and beautiful picture of God's love uh, for sinners, for, de- for dead sinners. And so it is especially... It's been especially potent in my life, and I'm, I'm glad that we get to share in this together. I want to go ahead and read through the first chapter today. We're actually only going to get to the first two verses as an introduction, but I want to read through the first chapter for a little bit of context. So let's read together, and then we'll pray. Lord, your name is above every name, above every ruler, above every president, above every person. You are in all, you fill all, you are the head of all. And so Lord, as we begin to dip our toes today and venture into the book of Ephesians, God, I I know because it's your word that you have so much for your people here. God, there are themes that run through this book that need to be injected into our lives and change us. There's truth here that I need in my walk with you to mature me, to grow me up into Christ. And Lord, my brothers and sisters need it too. And so God, our prayer today is that you would give us a knowledge of you that drives us to love you as we see your great love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we want to start today by laying some groundwork as we venture into Ephesians. Now, just a little bit about, we're going to talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Okay. Ephesus was a city very, very different than most of the cities or towns that we all live in. Right. Think about, you think about Clarksville, you think about Aneda, think about Eolia, even think about Bowling Green. Ephesus was way, way different than any of these towns. And so some, some groundwork I think will be helpful before we dig in. Now, I have a question. How many of you all, and you can raise your hand, how many of you all have ever been in a helicopter? Okay, awesome. More than I expected. That's great. So when I was a teenager, I was probably 17 or 18, we took a family vacation to the West. We drove 80 hours in a van. We had a counter. We, were, we spent 80 hours in a van together. Um, there were four of us. My brother was old. He was engaged. He was old and engaged, um, <laughs> older than all of us. And so he didn't go with us. So it was my young, my older sister, myself, and my younger sister, and my parents. And we drove around and we stopped at the Grand Canyon. How many of you guys have ever been to the Grand Canyon? That is an amazing, amazing experience. Um, my dad had it set up, bless him, that we took a helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon. And so we got prepared and we went to the, the helicopter place and we had to, every one of us had to get on a scale and we had to get weighed for weight distribution in the helicopter. Well, it just so happened 
that I weighed the same amount as the pilot. So guess where I got to sit? I got to sit right up front next to the pilot and the other suckers in my family had to sit in the back. Okay, so if the helicopter we were in, I don't know if it's like the ones you were in, but it was, it was glass, plexiglass, whatever it's made of, but it was clear all the way under my feet and all around. It was this little door that I got in. And so we're flying and, you know, we're coming up over these just huge rock faces. And I mean, it was an amazing experience. And I made a mistake in this trip. Um, it started to get hot in there. And so I wanted to roll down my window. I pulled on the wrong lever and I opened the door. No lie. I, I, it happened very quickly and I tried to shut it before the pilot noticed, but I opened the door. And so I think we're about three quarters of the way through. So it was only about five or six minutes, but I had to ride the entire rest of the way holding the door shut. So, so we didn't get sucked out. Um, but we, we were flying through this, through the Grand Canyon on this helicopter and we had already been to visit the edges. You know, you can walk up to the viewing points, and, and that's just an amazing experience. But when we were flying over, you could see down into the river, right? I think it's the Colorado River that goes through the Grand Canyon. And you could see people rafting. And you could see so much more than just standing on the edge. So I want to kind of take that thought and let's, let's do an overview of the book of Ephesians today. Okay, so we're going to climb in that proverbial helicopter. Don't open the door, please. And we're just going to kind of take an overview of the book and see what God has for us. It's kind of this zoomed out experience. When I was, when I was younger than the, the helicopter incident, we, my parents live in Foley in the country. We lived on a hill and it was wooded. And a guy came up to our house, and we rarely got visitors, and he knocked on the door, and he worked it out with my dad, and he, he flew a helicopter. And so he would go and take aerial photos of people's properties. I don't know how much it costs, but I can, I'm sure that you can find a buddy with a drone to fly it up above and do it for way cheaper today. I mean, you could really you could go on Google Maps and get a fairly decent view, but you can see things of your property that you, especially if you've got a lot, you can see things that maybe you didn't quite know before. So we're going to get kind of this aerial view of what Ephesians is. And so I want us to ask some questions. And these are from a commentary I, I worked with this week. And, and there's questions that are spanning throughout the whole book of Ephesians that I just kind of want to mention to you. I, I don't remember if they're in your notes, to be honest or not. But here's some of the questions that we're going to ask. And so I want you to just listen as I read them. And see what kind of piques your interest. Okay? What pricks your heart? Here's some of the questions that we're going to answer as we go through Ephesians. Why do we worship? What should we pray for? What's so amazing about God's grace? Who are we? Why is church such, such a big deal? How can we be unified? How do new people live? How can we imitate God? What is God's plan for marriage? How should we parent? How should we see our job or vocation? And how do we fight? Now, surely one of those things uh, got your attention, perked your ears up. In this book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, as Jason mentioned, is the author of this. He names himself there at the beginning. The Apostle Paul is, is more reflective in Ephesians than he is corrective. 
then, and, and it's un, unusual because most of his other books are, aren't like this. There's probably a good reason for that. It's, it's widely believed that Ephesians was more of a circular letter. Like it was written to all of the churches in this area, including the outlying uh, cities of Ephesus. And so it was probably more general in nature. Think about the, letter to the letters to the Corinthian church, especially 1 Corinthians. That is a highly corrective letter. Because there are specific situations, there are specific people that Paul names that they needed to do something about, they needed to work on, that they needed to fix. And we don't really see that as much in Ephesians. It's believed that Paul wrote this letter in prison while he was literally chained to a Roman guard. He he mentions being imprisoned three times in Ephesians, chapters 3, 4, and 6. It's, I found it interesting as I was researching what was going on with this that even though Paul was in prison, chained to a Roman guard, he could still have visitors. And we understand that probably one of those visitors acted as somewhat of a, like a secretary to Paul and took down and wrote down several of his letters. Ephesians is one of them. We think he wrote this around the same time as he wrote the letter to the Colossians and he wrote to Philemon in somewhere around A.D. 62. We get kind of an idea about this from Acts 28. Acts is kind of a a history of a lot of the early church, and so that's correlating with this. Acts 28, it talks about Paul's timetable of where he went and what he was doing, and so we kind of figure A.D. 62. Another interesting thing, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else on his missionary journeys around three years. And we're told in Acts chapter 19 kind of what he did. He spent three months preaching in the synagogue. He spent two years off and on preaching in the lecture hall. And a while longer is all that it says in Acts 19. A while longer in other places, possibly in home churches that were in the area. It was the longest stay of his missionary journey. And we're told the reason for this. If you look at 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, it says that he was going to stay in Ephesus because, as he described it, there was a wide door that had been opened for effective ministry. This door for effective ministry had been opened to him, and so he stayed around, even though, as we'll come to find out, he faced pretty intense persecution, pretty intense opposition in Ephesus. I think we can learn an important thing from this right off the bat. Just because you face opposition from something, just because you face some difficulties, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going against the will of God. Now, sometimes we need to be sensitive to that and realize that we're working against God and that's why things are so difficult. But that doesn't always mean that. Following God, I think most of us who've been doing that for a while, we recognize and realize it's not always an easy thing to do. It would be far easier to just go with the flow of everyone else. I mean, that's what Jesus taught. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. That's the easy path. If biblical history, if our own personal experiences are to be believed, then we know that it's often kind of lined with difficulties and trials. Our sinful nature, the patterns of this world, our enemy, they all want to keep us in this constant battle between what we know, doing what we know is right and doing what's easy. Uh, Paul wrestles with this in Romans 7. Acts 20, 
tells us that Paul served, and I love the way that this is put. It says that he served in Asia with tears and trials. With tears and trials. Guys, so many times in our lives, the opportunities that we have for ministering and sharing the gospel come right in the midst of great difficulties. I think of what it means to to build your body, to exercise and to train for something. You break your body down. It is a difficult process, but you're doing it for a purpose. And brothers and sisters, God's purpose in that is your sanctification. My sanctification. I think back all the way to Matthew 18 when we went through that. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and he told the disciples, he said, go get out on a boat and meet me on the other side. And what happened while they were on the on the on the sea storm winds tribulation difficulties in rowing and knowing where they were going did jesus know that that was going to happen absolutely and yet he sent them out to teach them a lesson they saw him then in that process they saw him in a way they never had before and it changed many of them this is part of god's design if you're going through a difficult season if you're experiencing tears and trials like Paul did, I hope that you're going to be encouraged while we walk through Ephesians together. I believe you will be. Even though Paul wrote this letter to Christians, I find it interesting that he takes three of the six chapters telling them basically what the gospel is. Half the time he spends teaching, talking about the gospel, what it is, how it's lived out. We need, brothers and sisters, we need the gospel every single day. It needs to be preached to us and through us every single day. We need to know who we are in Christ. And Ephesians teaches us that very thing. In fact, I mentioned that phrase. You saw it on our title slide. It said Ephesians in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, union with Christ, appears more in Ephesians than any other letter. 36 times in Ephesians, because I think that's what the core, that's the core of what Christians believe, right? That we're united in Christ, both to God and united to one another. Because we are in Christ, we're secure in him. Even when we face opposition, even when difficulties arise. And so this brings up the idea of identity. And a friend, a brother reminded me of this, this week that our identity is not wrapped up in our jobs. Our, our culture tells us that. That's one of the first questions. When you meet someone, you give them your name, and what do they ask you? What do you do? That's not a bad thing necessarily, but for a Christian, your job does not define you. Your identity is not wrapped up in that. Your identity is not wrapped up in how you dress. It's not wrapped up in the color of your skin. It's not wrapped up in your hobbies, how you look how tall or short you are. None of those things for a Christian defines us. The identity of every single believer is firmly bound up in Jesus. That's it. A good student of the Bible, and I would say that we all want to be that today. We want to be good students of the Bible. And so we need to ask ourselves questions when we come to reading a book. We need to ask, well, who's the author? Uh, who did he write it to? What are some of the core ideas behind it? So right off the bat, we were told who wrote this letter, Paul. He says, Paul, by the will of God, an apostle of Christ, to the saints in Ephesus. So it's not hard to pick up on that. 
if, if you were going to write a letter to someone in another place, let's say a crowded city in India, you're, you're going to write to them differently than you would write to a friend in Pike County, wouldn't you? I think we should. If you were going to encourage Christians at this town, in this town in India, you would write to them and encourage them differently than you would write to your neighbor or talk to your neighbor about how to share Christ. Why? Well, because the needs are different. The culture is different. Now, that doesn't change the word of God that we're sharing with them, but how we respond and how we encourage is going to be different because there's different challenges that they face based on their location and culture. So what do we know about Ephesus? A a couple of things. There's about four things that I want to talk about that really define this. Ephesus was a major city. It was at kind of a crossroads. It was a port city and a crossroads of the junction in Asia Minor. There were four major roads. Guess what that means for commerce and population? It means big. It means a lot of people, a lot of things. At the time, Ephesus was the fourth or fifth largest city in the whole world. It was a big city. For Just for some scale here, they, had, they built an amphitheater, and some of it is still there today. They built an amphitheater that held 25,000 people. That, they, that Their city hosted gladiator-type games, uh, Olympic-type games. And so there was just a lot of people there. Uh, the second big thing is that there in Ephesus, it was the headquarters for the Roman goddess Diana, or as it, it mentions in the book of Acts, Artemis. That's the Greek version of this. Th- there was a temple there, and Paul mentions it in Acts, a temp- the temple of Artemis, and it was built and devoted to this goddess Diana, this goddess Artemis, Artemis and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world the temple of Artemis, okay? Big. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon is. Okay, that's some of that's still there. It's four times bigger than that. And it was probably a mile from the amphitheater that we already talked about. If you look up, if you Google goddess Diana or Artemis, you'll see most of the images of her have, she's got a bow and a quiver. She was considered the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of fertility. As you can imagine, uh, she was then kind of called on, prayed to for assistance in childbirth and assistance in conception. Unfortunately, as you can also probably imagine, that belief so really started to degrade the culture and the society, and it's, they slid into really highly immoral things in their worship of this goddess. It was also the home to a statue of the Roman Emperor Trajan. Guess how he is represented. Guess in the statue what he's doing. He's got his foot on top of the world. Emperor Trajan has his foot on top of the world. Now, if you compare this with other Roman rulers in history, that's pretty, that lines up pretty well. These guys were viewed as gods. And they were okay with that for the most part. They wanted to be viewed that way. And so when we read... And we read through it in verse 21. Look at chapter 21 of Ephesians, verse 21 and the beginning of 22. I think that's why Paul puts Christ above all the things the way that he does. Look at the languages that he uses. He says, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. Isn't that interesting? What a contrast to the culture Paul is getting at here. Guys, when Christians in that day, when they said Jesus is Lord, essentially they were saying Caesar is not. And that put them in danger. That put them in harm's way. As you can imagine, it was extremely countercultural at the time. But I got to thinking, I mean, isn't that the same way today? When we say, when we confess Jesus is Lord, aren't we saying that nothing else is? Nothing. Nothing. If Jesus is Lord, nothing else can be. Not our jobs, not our hobbies, not our spouse or our kids even. Not our pleasures, not our need for control, not ourselves and our selfish ambitions. Nothing. Our culture, I think, is just utterly confused when Christians really live that way. They, do, they don't know what to do with believers who actually live out what they say they believe. When Christians sacrifice time and they give extra money and spend their energy on things that aren't for themselves confuses our culture. To work hard, to be able to take a big family vacation, that makes sense, doesn't it? Every American understands that. You work hard, you put in overtime so that your family can take an awesome vacation. Got it. But when you put in overtime and you work hard in order to give more to the church or to another family in the church, or when you work extra in order to send that money to a missionary that you may never meet, that's not normal in our world's view. That's counter-cultural. But if Jesus is our Lord, then it's Him that determines what's important to us, not us. We don't determine that. Our culture does not determine that. Jesus as Lord does. So Ephesus was a city... Uh, also caught up in intense spiritual warfare. And if you know chapter 6 in Ephesians, Paul addresses that specifically. We also see in Acts chapter 19 that there's some Jews here that tried casting demons out of people, and it didn't go so well for them. The demons responded to these people and said, Who are you? We know these other guys, but who are you? And, and they jumped on these people. And drove them out. It did not go well for them. In the process of all of this, if you read there in Acts chapter 19, something that said that I think is very key. It said, even despite all of these things, that fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It also says that the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. Even despite that kind of conflict in Ephesus, spiritual conflict. In the same chapter of Acts 19, we see this interesting story about a silversmith named Demetrius. He's selling, of course he's, he's a silversmith, so he makes things out of silver. And guess what he makes out of silver? Idols of goddess Diana. So he's a silversmith who makes idols of this uh, goddess who the city is known for. And he's making a pretty good living. He stands up. In front, of the in front of the crowd, and he starts trying to convince them that Paul and all of his buddies that are preaching the truth, that they are just defaming the name of this goddess, 
and that they're going to bring havoc and chaos into the city and that they should just go ahead and kill them. And so they back them into this like theater type thing. They back them up and it looks as though it's going to be the end for these preachers of the gospel. And it's, it's, it's an unusual and neat story. Someone who doesn't even know the Lord comes in and kind of defends them and splits up the crowd and they leave unharmed. But in his appeal to try to kill Paul and his friends, he says, hey, we're making a good living from selling these idols. Look what he's doing to our trade. So was it really that he was that upset about him defaming the name of their God? Or was he really just worried about his bottom line? I think we can see what the truth is. There was tension in the city because of this. Think about why he was so upset. If people came to Christ, guess who they weren't worshiping anymore? The goddess Diana, Artemis. Guess who they didn't need little silver statues of anymore and weren't buying from him? So it hurt his bottom line. So there was tension here. There's spiritual warfare here. There was idolatry. There was vast immorality. And yet, the thrust of Paul's message was that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to break through all of these worldly things, all of these satanic strongholds, and bring people to salvation through Christ. That was Paul's ultimate thrust and what we see here. Not only that, but he says those who are in Christ, as we read in that first chapter, have access to every spiritual blessing. I mean, what a hope that we have in the midst of challenging circumstances. If you are in tears and trials, remember this. The gospel breaks through every stronghold. Paul is writing to faithful saints here. He calls them that. He says, faithful saints, that's those who persevere. That's those who have continued and still continue in the faith. Think about this. This is something I learned this week. At the writing of this letter to, to the Ephesian churches, it's, it's likely that Paul hadn't been in Ephesus for like seven or eight years. He'd been gone for seven or eight years before he wrote this letter to them. That's a long time. Think about seven or eight years ago in your own life. Right? For me, that's three kids ago. That's a, that's a lot. That's a long time. So a lot can happen in, in seven or eight years. And so there's a lot of time for doubts to come up. There's a lot of time for conflict in the church to creep in and for the churches just to generally start to lose their sense of direction and to lose their sense of purpose. And so Paul responds through the book of Ephesians to these problems. I think that's why in verse 13 of this first chapter, he reminds them, he, sa- he says, guys, don't forget, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's no need to doubt. God still has a plan and a, and a hold on you. You're sealed. I also think this is why in chapter 2, Paul reminds him about how they're united in Christ despite their different upbringings, despite their different heritage. He says no need to argue and to fight. The same Jesus that died for Jews died for Gentiles. For Jewish sinners died for Gentile sinners. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says those who are near and those who are far off. What defines you now, he tells them, is not your Roman citizenship. It's not your heritage of where you come from. Because in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, ultimately, every believer is a citizen of the household of God. You are here now citizens of 
America. But that is not your ultimate allegiance. It's okay to fly the flag. It's okay to be proud of what God has done in this country. But ultimately, this is not our home. These are not our people. God's people are our people. And they are spread out in America and in every other nation. Because the book of Revelation reminds us, is very clear, God is bringing together people from every tribe and every nation. I think this is also why Paul responds and tells people in chapter 6, verse 24, he says, guys, love the Lord Jesus. He uses this term. He says, with love incorruptible. With love incorruptible. Don't forget how you started, church, he says, with such great love for Jesus. If you, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus is mentioned, and it's sad. Because in, in Revelation chapter 2, it said how the church at Ephesus had abandoned the love that they had from the start. And so Paul is trying to encourage them. In chapter 6, verse 24, says, Brothers and sisters, love Jesus with a love incorruptible that does not change. Guys, I, I'm confident that as we read through the book of Ephesians together, we're going to learn how to love Jesus more. Because we're going to learn more how God loves us. In just Think about just the first chapter. Here's one of the lists. The first chapter alone gives us like eight or nine things that just should give us so much excitement and hope. He says this. We have, in just the first chapter, Paul says that we have been chosen and adopted by the Father. Chosen and adopted by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son We've been sealed with the Spirit. We've been given resurrection power. We've been given eyes to see the Lordship of Jesus. We've been rescued from death into life. We've been raised and seated with Christ, and we've been created for good works. I just realized that actually goes into chapter 2 as well. Chapters 1 and 2 give us those kinds of things that God is doing in us. And so Paul, he starts off the letter by confirming who he is, who he was writing to, the spirit in which he was writing. What was the spirit in which he was writing to the people, the saints in Ephesus? Grace and peace. That's what he says. Grace and peace be unto you. Paul uses these words pretty frequently in Ephesians. He uses the word grace 12 times. He uses the word peace at least four times. I think this is, it makes it clear that these are like truths that undergird his teaching to the churches in Ephesus. Grace and peace. You see it. And right out of the gate, Paul says that these things come from where? Come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, these gifts of God are not found in our heritage, in their social status, and it certainly was not found in their idols. Only in Jesus. So, as we prepare to launch into this chapter. I mean, Paul, hopefully you could hear as we read through the first chapter today, Paul hits the ground running here. I'm excited for it. But I want to encourage you as we prepare to do that next week, I want to encourage you with the same kind of thought that, that Paul does. The grace and peace, guys, cannot be found in anything in this world. Anything this world has to offer, it can only be found in Jesus himself. Grace and peace are only found in Jesus. 
in the first half of the book of Ephesians, half or so, Paul emphasizes over and over again about how the saints are supposed to be together in the gospel. When we were going through our Together series several times, I, I read from the book of Ephesians. Saints are to be together in the gospel. As I already mentioned, that's what defines us. Jesus and our love for him defines us. Uh, a guy named Steve Timmis wrote a book called Total Church. Our leadership read that a long time ago, several years ago. But he says this that I think is really helpful in this idea. He says, it's not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with others who are in Christ. That is my identity. This is our identity. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. So, around chapter 4, about halfway through the letter, Paul kind of switches gears a little bit, and he starts talking about the responsibilities of those saints. So the first half was like, saints, here's who you are in Christ. You're together in Him. Second half, he says, saints, here's what you now go do Here's how you act. Here's how you walk because of that. He says, walk in love. And he explains what that looks like. He explains what it looks like to submit to God. Ephesians 5 is all about submission to God. Guys, our time in Ephesians, I think, is going to be supremely sweet. But not always. Let me explain. Um, Three or four years ago, Nikki and I decided we want to try to keep bees. We've got some beekeepers here, the Brown family. You guys keep bees. Jerry Keevan keeps bees. Anybody else? The Beechams keep bees, right? And so I talked with some of you guys, and we decided to keep bees. And so we got, we got all set up, and we had a beehive. And I kept in my parents' house because we lived in a subdivision in Troy at the time. And so we'd go out there on the weekends, and I'd, I'd fiddle with the bees. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I'd open the thing up, and there's thousands of bees flying all over the place. Well, we got, I don't know what happened, and just so you know, I have no bees right now, because I'm, I'm not a good beekeeper. I could not keep the bees. Um, they're all gone. So, but at that time, we had bees, and for whatever reason, they were really mad one day. And so I had kind of the typical veil, you know, that kind of ties and goes around. Well, they were really mad one day, and they did not like what I was doing. I was looking to see if they were making honey, right? Because that's the point of keeping bees, is you want the honey, well, they were mad, and I didn't learn my lesson quick enough, and those bees started to get up under my veil. And I had a, a beard kind of like this at the time, and it trapped inside the veil, I've got bees buzzing in my beard, and they're angry bees, and bees stinging me on the neck. And the bees, Nikki and some of the kids and my parents' dogs are not far away, and one of the dogs gets stung because those bees were just mad at everything. It's one stung Nikki in the face, I think, too, at that time. And so I'm running. I'm saying, run! And I'm running. I'm trying to untie and get this, this bee veil off of me. And they're stinging me. And, um, and it, it just was not, it was not a pleasant situation. But, but, and yet, guess what I did the next weekend? I went back and I opened the bees up. And I was a little more cautious and more prepared at that point. I bought one of the full zip-up bee suits. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't going to do that again. Uh, but I went and I did it again because I, I wanted the honey, right? That was the point. I wanted, unfortunately, I never got any honey from three hives of bees because um, I'm not that good of a beekeeper. But I, I think 
I relate that to our time in, in Ephesians. I think we're going to get that honey, though. But guys, I think we may have to endure some bee stings along the way. You see what I'm saying? There's things in Ephesians that might rock your world a little bit. They may rock my world some. It's worth it, though. I think, I hope and pray by the end of our time in Ephesians, we can say, man, God, all of, all of the stings that we endured was worth it. And I think that they will be. I hope that you'll join us in our time together in this book. Believer, Ephesians is going to remind you who you are in Christ. And I believe it's going to amplify a revelation of God's love in your life. It's going to show us that. And it does it right off the bat in chapter 1. I'm excited for that. But, you know, maybe you're here without Christ. Ephesians is going to tell you the truth about who you are. It'll tell you who you really are without Jesus. It's going to tell you who God is, but then it's going to tell you what God really wants in your life, how God wants to relate to you in this life and the next. I think if we let this, the text speak for itself, if we let God's word do his desired work in our hearts, if we really want to hear from God, we're going to be challenged and we're going to be encouraged and we're going to be stung and we're going to be delighted in all that God has for us in Ephesians. And so I would encourage you, um, maybe you're already working through a book in your personal time with the Lord, but if, if you're at a point where you're not doing that at the moment, I'd encourage you, read through the book of Ephesians. Our, our, my prayer is that this background of understanding some of the tensions in the city of Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this helps us to kind of see more clearly why this is relevant, even still to us today. Because honestly, brothers and sisters, culture hasn't changed a whole awful lot. We can look at a lot of different markers in American culture and say, man, that is wicked. Right? And in Ephesus, it was the same way. So I want to pray as we close today and just ask God to do a work in our hearts as we prepare to go through Ephesians together. Let's pray. Lord, we desire, we desire that your your commands be like, like sweet honey on our lips because we want, we absolutely want you to speak to us in ways that make us delighted. Lord, we are also confident that every word of yours does not return to you void. You accomplish every bit of your purpose in it, in its revealing our sin, in its reminding us of who we are in Christ, of the hope that we have in Him. Even when everything else in this world is falling apart or lets us down, we have Christ. And so as we, are, as we go through this book and we are reminded of these things, Lord, we want to have open hearts. As uh, it, we actually read in Ephesians chapter 1, that the, the, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to your truth. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see you in this book, to see you and how we are wrapped up in Christ alone. In his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.